And the next thing I know, I'm up at 4,000 feet. Um, did climb straight ahead, but 4,000 feet. And, you know, what the heck just happened? And I turned to the captain and looked him in the eyes, and he's just laughing his head off. And he just said to me, don't worry, he said, that happens to everybody. This aeroplane is like a fast jet in the Air Force, except you've got a 100 passengers strapped to you. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello, I'm Tim Robinson and welcome to another episode of Aviation Extended, Europe's premier aerospace internet podcast. Uh, today we're absolutely thrilled to have as our guest Captain Mike Bannister, former Concorde Chief Pilot British Airways, to talk, talk about his new book, um, Concorde. Mike, uh, a hearty welcome to Extended. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. It's great to be here. No, really looking forward to um, having a chat with you. Uh, I mean, the, the book is, is, I have to say, brilliant. Um, great stuff for any fan of Concorde, great stuff for any fan of aviation really so um let's sort of start off there i mean there's lots to talk about i've got i've got a whole list of questions here but we'll see how we can how far we can get um so uh, i mean my, my first question would be what inspired you to, to write this book in the first place i mean i mean concord's so popular it's you know lots of people have, 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 have done done stuff on it you know why why did you decide to write it and why now well, well, thank you for your kind words about it. Um, it was funny. It was around about uh, 20 years in the making, I guess. Uh, the last flights of Concorde were in 2003, the last scheduled one from New York to London, October the 24th, and then the very last flight when we took the aircrafts off to the ver- various locations around the world, the very last one was on Nova the- November the 26th. By that stage of my career, I was not just the chief t- Concorde pilot. I was also general manager for all of British Airways' uh, medium-haul and short-haul aircraft, so the 737, 75, 76, the Airbus family, and Concorde. And my original plan when Concorde finished was to go off and fly one of my other aeroplanes, probably an Airbus. Uh, But my boss had different ideas, and he said, right, Mark, I would like you to look after Gatwick. So I said to him, is that as the same as well as Heathrow instead of? He said, no, it's the same as Heathrow, as well as Heathrow, and you don't get any more money. So I went from being Concorde chief pilot to looking after all of Heathrow, short haul, medium haul, and all of Gatwick operations, which was huge fun. But interestingly, it corresponded pretty much with me reaching 55 years of age. Now, when I joined BOAC, which became British Airways, all pilots had to retire at the age of 55. As I've gone into the management team, I had an option to move to a management contract and carry on flying beyond 55. 
when I went to the pension company to ask them some advice on that, they said, well, we can't give you any advice, but we can give you statistics. And everybody but one or two in your position, 98.6% of people in your position, stay on a pilot's contract. So that's what I did. So I had to retire at 55, which was the, the following year. And so it was then when I retired that I thought, well, maybe I should write a book. Um, but um, I'm a lucky sort of guy. I always wanted to be a pilot from the age of seven. I'd lived my dream and I just wanted to put something back. And so I got very involved in the voluntary sector. Um, I'm a chair of governors of a couple of independent schools, chair at Brooklyn's Museum, run a charity for British Airways with my wife and some friends and all very active in the church. And so I never really got round to it. And it was sort of in the I did some of the writing, just uh, bits and pieces. Then a couple of years ago, I read a book called Harrier 809 by an author called Roland White. And I loved it. It's a story of the, the Harrier operations in the Falklands. And that's something I'm interested in anyway. And also, it was so beautifully written. I love the writing style. And at the back of the book, it said, if you want to contact the author, um, email him at roland.white.com or whatever. So I thought, Do you know what? I will. Not half expecting a reply. At the end of my email saying how much I'd love the book, I just in passing said I'm toying the idea of writing one myself. Well, I didn't know. <laughs> But his day job is a publishing editor for one of the main <laughs> Penguin Random House titles. I didn't know that. And he came straight back to me and said, we need to talk. And that was two years ago. And uh, the book is kind of the output of all that activity. So I eventually got around to doing it. Fantastic. Well, uh, Roland is a great friend of the show here. We've had him to talk on about uh, Falklands, Harriers, uh space shuttles uh you know what and uh yeah so uh, amazing well uh, excellent um so you said you 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 were you know you were inspired into uh you know flying at a, a, a young age age seven so so what was your what was the what was the trigger for you know what, what got, got you into it got you the, the flying bug in the first place well we can we used to live in southern Bedfordshire and we didn't have a car and uh, we always used to go on holidays on, on coaches down to the south coast because that's where some friends of my parents lived. I call them aunt and uncle, but they weren't really. That's what you did in those days. And we would always go to them for holidays every year. I guess it was the cheap option because mum and dad weren't particularly wealthy. And it was great. I loved it. But I didn't like the five and a half hour coach journey that it took to get there. And I hate coach journeys to this day. And I can remember as a seven-year-old sitting on the beach just outside Bournemouth with my bucket and spade in my hand, looking up and watching this little airplane fly over on its way to France or the Channel Islands or somewhere. And with the precociousness of a seven-year-old working out that that journey, that five-and-a-half-hour coach journey, would have taken me just 20 minutes in an airplane. So that was it. I was sold. I want to be a pilot. So I went back up the beach and told mum and dad, and they said, yes, dear. Um, but I stuck at it. And went all the way through school with that as an ambition. And then I was lucky enough to get a place at the College of Air Training at Hamble, which I went to in 1967. And in 1969, when I was studying for my final exams, I was sitting in the, the corner of the final study room. And there's a little black and white television in the other corner. And that was when I saw the first flight of the British Assembled Concorde, the 9th of April, 1969. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Concorde pilot. Now, of course, at that age, you don't think anything's impossible. So I left Hamble, went straight to BOAC at the age of 19, uh, onto the VC-10, 
uh, had great time on that for eight years, and then bid to and was lucky enough to get onto Concord as a co-pilot and latterly an instructor. And then in 1989, I joined the management team, did a whole bunch of management jobs, technical training, central communications. And in 1995, the boss said, Mike, would you like to be the chief Concord pilot? So I said, well, I'm going to have to think about it. I've thought about it, yes. Um, and so that was kind of it. And uh, that's where I remained until I retired. But obviously, I, I acquired some other responsibilities in the meantime. So for this little boy of seven to end up with a chief uh, Concorde pilot was really dreams coming true. Wow. Um, I mean, what, what were, I mean, they, they just getting on, on, on to, to be a Concorde pilot is just, just uh, incredible re- reading your book in the first place. What, what were they looking when they, for when they were selecting a Concorde pilot, uh, airmanship, handling tests? Um, and one, one of the interesting things you, you, you mentioned in the book is that, that people, a lot of the pilots seem to be put off because there was, was a downgrade in pay and, 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 uh, you weren't getting as much allowances because you were there and back. So, a whole load of junior pilots kind of swept is that, uh, swept in. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I, what they were looking for was always a mystery. I jokingly said to people, it's good looks and straight teeth, but I don't think it really did <laughs> that. Um, no, you had to be in the right place at the right time. Um, it was a bidding process and done on seniority. So just talking about co-pilots now, um, I was fortunate enough to be in the right place. I was senior enough to have got the experience, but not so senior that I was close to getting my command. So that put me in the right notch. Then you've got to be lucky enough to be in the, the top four or five in seniority because each course only had four yeah, or five yeah. crews on it. Um, and also you've got to want to do it because it's a heck of a conversion course. A normal conversion course to take somebody from an airplane like the VC-10 or the 707 that were the, the stalwarts then onto something like the 747 would take two months. To get onto Concorde, it took six months. Uh, and of that six months, four months were residential in Bristol. So you did two months in the classroom, two months on the simulator, uh, and two months flying the actual airplane. And the four months that were uh, residential in Bristol not only put a strain on the individual, they put a strain on their families as well. So you really had to want to do it. And the other issue was that people expect, you know, a lot of pilots will all say, I want to fly Concorde, I want to fly Concorde. Well, I think most pilots want to fly it, but do they want to have their career on it? There's a, right. there's kind of a handful of reasons why you want to be a commercial pilot. You love flying airplanes. You want to see the world. You want a decent salary. You're liking a regular lifestyle. You like a good social life, whatever. Depending on which one comes top of your list, that would affect which airplane you choose to go on. So if you if you love flying airplanes, then Concorde's the first choice. But if you want to see the rest of the world, clearly it's not because it was a very limited route, route structure. And if you want to make as much money as possible, it also wasn't the right way to go because in those days you could get paid quite a significant amount of extra money flying ultra-long-range sectors on the 747. And as you rightly said, you know, trips on Concorde were much shorter. And for a co-pilot, because they had to be senior enough to get on the airplane – um, and stay there for at least five years, it could actually cost them around £10,000 a year uh, in salary to stay on Concorde, whereas they could have gone to become a captain on a short-haul airplane. Um, and that's when £10,000 was a lot of money. So, you know, you had to not only have the dedication and the, the devotion and be prepared to take salary sacrifices, but it had to be the right career choice for you. And if all those boxes were ticked, I can guarantee it's definitely the best place to be. 
And when you were chief pilot, presumably you were you were there picking the next uh, the next sort of batch of uh, Concorde pilots, and 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 uh, what what were you look, you looking for as well? Were, were you were there any informal sort of um, kind of I don't know sort of tests or, or I'm thinking here of the the kind of um, the, the the sort of CRM or, or or kind of working with you know you are you are flying the flagship of British Airways you are uh, an ambassador for the airline and would therefore we want people who are you know skilled at speaking to to royalty to VIPs to celebrities you know we we we, we need those sort of, sort of people who are good at kind of cocktail parties I suppose <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... It, it wasn't explicitly like that. I guess by the time I got to be chief pilot in 95, uh, the airplane had been around for quite a long time, almost 20 years. And so there was a lot of knowledge about the sort of uh, career that a Concorde pilot would have. So firstly, the, as I say, limited route structure. But you're right about the, the PR side of things, the, the necessity to communicate with people, the uh, the complexity of the airplane, the length of the course. So it was kind of self-selecting. And the people that came forward were folks that had those characteristics anyway. I think the the one thing I always look for in a candidate is capacity. Um, the ability to be able to do all the necessary tasks and still have enough left over to cope with the unexpected and then still have enough left over to cope with the emergency. Now, all pilots need capacity, um, but for Concorde travelling at 1,350 miles an hour, uh, you kind of have to think even further ahead. And with other complicated aspects, so for instance, should you be unfortunate enough to lose an engine or an engine stop going across the Atlantic, you're flying at 60,000 feet, you've got to get down into the subsonic areas, you've got to think about where you're going to divert to because you're your range is cut by a third by traveling subsonic, all those sort of things. So you need capacity to be able to do that. And again, folks realize that. Um, and it showed in some of the uh, early conversion courses. So in the early days, the very early days, right at the very beginning, because this was the new toy, it attracted a lot of very senior people to bid. But unfortunately, a lot of the senior folks hadn't done any training at all of any significance for years. And so, and simplistically, they'd forgotten how to learn. And with a, a complicated course like Concord, if you take a week or two weeks learning how to learn, you're going to be two weeks behind for the rest of the time. And so the failure rate on those early courses was very high. It was about 50%. Wow. Uh, and that got around the community. And so all of a sudden, it was not the most senior pilots that were bidding for Concorde. It was the most junior pilots, particularly amongst the captains. And so we did get a fair number of really quite relatively junior pilots who stayed on the airplane for a long time. And so uh, what was needed was more self-selecting than selected by the management team. Um, but the knowledge of what was needed was pretty much uh, throughout the company. And of course, it had to be great fun. There's no point in doing it if it's not fun. And believe me, it was huge fun. I mean, the other incredible thing is, is uh, you were let loose at the controls of Con Concord at age 28, which is, is now seems sort of staggeringly because you know you you think you think of you know I don't know um, a a astronauts or, or whatever, and and uh, you know 28. I mean, presuming that's a hangover from the from the World War Two days of the bomber barons, where you know you had you'd had 
Lancaster skippers who are aged 22 and and, 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 and and things like that. You know, the responsibility was just, yeah, okay. They're, they're, they're 22, they're 28, they, they can handle it. Yeah, and it was, the, of course, in those days when I joined BOAC, um, it was a long-haul only airline. And so consequently, the, the cadets, the pilots that went to BOAC had to go straight onto a long-haul airplane. Now, if you've got a, an airline like British Airways and you're taking in new pilots, clearly it makes a lot more sense to have them join and fly short-haul airplanes first to build up their hours and their sector and their experience. And so it wasn't at all unusual for young pilots to be flying four-engine aircraft all around the world. And so it didn't seem to be a huge step to move on to Concorde. Um, and certainly at the time, you know, it, it wasn't, it never really occurred to me I was particularly young to be doing the job because I'd already done, uh, eight years in BA, in BOAC BA flying the VC 10. Um, but in hindsight, you're right, you know, <laughs> my daughter's, uh, a pilot with TUI. She's 29 now and she's on the, the 737. And, you know, when you compare where she is with where I was, it, it does put it in focus how extraordinarily lucky. I was to end up in that place at that time. Wow, yeah. Um, so what, what was, take us back to your first flight. What, what, what was that, what was that like? Um, well, my first real flight, um, which was at the end of the first four months. So we've done two months technical chalk and talk, learning the, the, the nits, uh, the bits and pieces about the airplane. Um, and then we did two months in the simulator, 19 four hour simulator sessions learning initially how to actually fly the airplane, but uh, a lot of it's how to manage the airplane and how to operate it properly. Then at the end of that, before you go fly the airplane on the route with passengers and an instructor next to you, you've got to go and do some takeoffs and landings, circuits and bumps. Um, the simulator we had was very good, um, but it wasn't uh, certificated to train pilots to do takeoffs and landings just in the simulator like modern simulators are. So you had to go fly the airplane at base, which was typically Shannon or Bryce Norton, Bryce Norton in my case. So you go out there with a bunch of other pilots and some instructors and some training flight engineers. And it, your turn comes and you're sitting at the end of the runway. All the checks are done. You've started up. You've taxied out. You're in the right-hand seat. You've got a very experienced Concorde captain in the left-hand seat. And you know what you're going to do because you've practiced it on the simulator and the simulator can simulate G-forces to an extent. So you know that you're taking off with absolute maximum power, full power, all the reheats, but you're actually 65 tons lighter than the airplane's maximum weight. So you're 65 tons lighter, still using full power. So the performance is going to be, you know, significant. So the captain turned to me and said, Mike, I'd like you to take off, climb straight ahead, and level off at 2,500 feet, if you can. And I thought, what do you mean if I can? Of course I can. I'm an experienced <laughs> pilot. So we always did a countdown, three, two, one, now, and slam the throttles open. Well, I did that. I was literally pushed back into my seat with the acceleration. And the next thing I know, I'm up at 4,000 feet. Um, I did climb straight ahead, but 4,000 feet. Uh, you know, what the heck just happened? But I turned to the captain and looked him in the eyes and he's just laughing his head off. And he just said to me, don't worry. He said, that happens to everybody. Um, so that was a really memorable first uh, takeoff. And of course, you're spending a lot of the time then learning how to tame this beast and get it to do what you want it to do rather than letting it do what it wants to do and taking you with it. So, um, I mean, when one of my colleagues, 
who'd been an, uh, later on in my career when I was an instructor. I was t- uh, training a first officer who'd come from the Air RAF, and he had been a tornado pilot in the RAF. And when he got to fly the aeroplane, I did the same thing to him. Uh, uh, same thing happened. He leveled off at about 4,000 feet. And when we were chatting about it later on, he said something that to me was memorable. He said, this aeroplane is like a fast jet in the Air Force, except you've got a 100 passengers strapped to you. And it, it was that was just it. It had the sort of performance that uh, military aircraft had at the time. And it was really just a very, very good fast jet with passengers. With passengers, brilliant. Uh, so, so talk about the, the handling of the Concorde. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's one praise there. People sort of say the Concorde and the 747, uh, you know, in terms of handling. But any vices or quirks that could catch a pilot, the new pilot out? I mean, uh, rolling away from a dead engine, you mentioned. But uh, but also, I mean, you've got all that, the, the complex, uh, you know, um, CFG management to a center of gravity, haven't you, with, the, with shifting the fuel around that's uh, uh, quite novel. In, in pure handling terms, she handled beautifully. And you could fly her uh, with your fingertips through takeoff, climb, acceleration, uh, supersonic cruise, deceleration, descent and landing. And I've, I've done that a couple of times when we've come back from New York and autopilots haven't been working properly. But you can. She's rather like a, a thoroughbred racehorse rather than a riding school hack or a sports car rather than a truck. Uh, she really was a very, very responsive aeroplane. But as you rightly say, it had some un- she had some unusual characteristics, one of which uh, was rolling the wrong way if you had an engine failure. Now, if you have an engine failure at a conventional airplane at subsonic speeds, the airplane yaws towards the side that the engine's failed on. So if an engine fails on the left-hand side, because you've got engine on the right-hand side or engines on the right-hand side developing power, the airplane will yaw to the left. With Concorde, if you were travelling supersonically at Mach 2, that didn't happen. It went the other way. Now, the reason it went the other way was that to get the air that was travelling at twice the speed of sound under control, a large door would open on the underside of the intake of the failed engine to dump all this surplus air overboard. Otherwise, it could build up and could cause its neighbour to surge. So this big door, called a spill door, would open up, and that would have a jet effect and so, yes, the airplane would initially very slightly start to yaw to the left. But once that spill door opened with a jet effect, it starts to roll to the right and yaw to the right. So it goes the opposite direction to the way you would initially and instinctively think it would. So that was a, a trick you had to learn. Um, actually, the aerodynamics of the airplane are different because of the nature of the wing and the vortex lift. And there were tricks that you had to learn about how to handle the airplane in the the landing phase because it did land very differently to a conventional airplane. And, of course, you had other things, as you mentioned, like um, moving the fuel, because what the designers didn't want to do was to have the flying controls out of alignment with a very, very cleverly designed wing. They didn't want to generate drag by having the... Uh, elevons, which are a combination of elevators and ailerons sticking into the airstream. They wanted them smooth. So the way to trim the airplane is you get faster, because as you get faster, the center of lift moves. So to balance the center of gravity with the center of lift, rather than moving the controls, you move the center of gravity. So you pump about 10 tons of fuel from the front of the airplane to the back as you go faster. And then as you slow down, you pump it forward again. Now that's fundamentally a role for the flight engineer but it's a team game 
Uh, all of the things that we did on the flight deck were initiated by one person, uh, actioned by a second and monitored by a third. And so all of these things were done as a team game, even if that particular task was under the immediate direct control of the flight engineer. We were always very aware of where the center of gravity was because the position of the center of gravity dictated the, the, the fastest and the slowest speeds that you could fly at every any given time. And likewise, the speed you're flying dictated where the center of gravity could be. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things I, 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 I love about the book actually is, is there is, uh, it's not a technical book by any means. You know, it, it's something that a, a lay person could read, but you've got, you know, nice little illustrations and graphics and, and nice little diagrams here and there in it, which just sort of explains, oh, right, okay, well, yeah, this is where the, the fuel tanks are, or this is where the, you know, um, so you've got that nice little bit of extra knowledge, Concorde fuel tank layout. I'm just looking at it here, uh, that gives you a little bit of extra, um, knowledge, uh, rather than, you know, I don't know, breaking out the blueprints. <laughs> well, that was very intentional <laughs> because there are some exceptionally good books out there about the, the detailed technical, um, specifications and nature of the airplane. There's some great books out there. Um, but I was determined that this would not be a technical manual. This had to be something that hopefully anybody could pick up, read, enjoy and understand. And, um, I had a great uh, mechanism for trying to do that. I would write it in the way that I felt was understandable and easy to follow. Uh, then I'd pass it to my wife, um, and she'd pass it to a couple of friends, and I'd take their feedback and I'd change it. Um, so, you know, they would come back and say, I really don't understand this bit. And so, I, you know, if they don't understand it, then I've got to rewrite it so that they do understand it. And it was a, it was a great test to run it through non-aviation people to get them and their, get their views on whether I'd made it too complicated. Um, and I passed one piece. There's a section in there about Dutch roll, which is a, an unusual phenomenon. But anyway, I passed one piece in front of my daughter, who does know about it because she's a pilot, and she came back and said, Dad, I think you've got that bit wrong. And uh, I actually had, in trying to make it simple, I'd actually got the, the whole concept the wrong way around. So fortunately, she put me right, and so we rewrote that section. So hopefully it's now correct. But, yeah, so it was, in that sense, it was absolutely deliberate and intentional that it was going to be readable and not too technical. Not that I'd skip over the really important stuff like moving the fuel, because that's an inherent aspect of the airplane. But I just didn't want it to be something that when a reader gets to that point and says, I don't get this, they put the book down. That's yeah. not the objective. You know, you've got to make it so that people can go with you and can understand the, the, the story that you're trying to tell. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science, and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com. 
Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. So for, for, for obviously for the, for the lay reader as well, uh, you know, I mean, one of the, the, I suppose one of the, one of the things that might be interesting in, in, is, is your, any favorite passengers or celebrities you particularly recall on board? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's an interesting bit there of the, uh, a test pilot from the SR 71 that gets a little bit on an official stick time, I believe. Yeah. Well, that was Bill Weber. Now, he, it was, that was very interesting because th- this was in the days prior to 9-11 where, well, we could invite people onto the flight deck in flight, and we did often. Uh, it would have been very unusual for, uh, to have a flight across the Atlantic uh, where we didn't have some of the passengers wanting to come onto the flight deck. Normally about on a scheduled flight, maybe between 10 and 15 would come up. Uh, on a on a special charter flight, all 100 would come up, and we actually put a flight crew member, an extra flight crew member on the flight deck just to host those visits. But on this particular occasion, we'd had a message from uh, London Heathrow Central Control from British Airways saying there was this individual on board. We're bringing him back from Washington. Could we extend all courtesies, which is code for would you let him sit on the flight deck for takeoff and landing? So we did. Um, and I'm a co-pilot and we're, we're getting up to, you know, we're approaching supersonic speed. The captain's flying the airplane on the way back from Washington and um, and he said to me, Mike, he said, close the door, will you? Because so, we flew with the door open all the time. So I closed the door um, and he said, because I got out of the seat to pop back to the loo. And he said, don't bother getting in your seat. He said, and he popped Bill in there uh, to let Bill have a little go, which I thought was <laughs> unusual. Um, but anyway, he's the boss, so so be it. Well, Bill handled the acceleration beautifully. I, I mean, I, I couldn't have done it any better myself and probably not as well as he did. And yeah, real fabulous. And it transpires that he's going over to London because he's now the chief test pilot for Lockheed for the TriStar program. And we're looking to convert our BA's fleet of TriStars into tankers. So anyway, he was going over for that. So we knew he was a competent pilot. Anyway, he really enjoyed that. And he sat up for the landing, he didn't fly for the landing, but he sat up for the landing. And we used to go around to a pub around the corner after a flight. And he, we invited him along and he came along and I had the audacity to to say to him, ah, Bill, you know, you flew that beautifully. Have you ever flown supersonically before? Do you ever know when you put your foot right in it? (laughs) It transpires he was a chief test pilot for the Blackbird program. And the most significant thing that um, happened to him in terms of gee whizness was when he had an unstart on the Blackbird outside the flight envelope, so about Mark 3.8, the whole aeroplane broke up around him. Sadly, his rear seater was killed. Uh, and it, um, he was found himself up at goodness knows how, 70,000 plus feet, Mach 3.8, without an aeroplane. 
And this young sprog in BA has asked him if he's flown supersonic yet. Um, but then he relates the whole story as to what happened. And I put that in the book, but it's, uh, it's fabulous. And I won't tell the story. A, it takes too long and I don't want to spoil it. But at the very end of all these horrendous things as he's coming down, he eventually lands in some unbeknown part of the Nevada desert, um, having, you know, had all sorts of things happen to him on the way down. And he thinks, and then, and then he said, and then the day got bad because he heard a <laughs> helicopter. And his helicopter comes over and lands and the local farmers see him coming down. He says, jump in, I'll fly to the hospital, which he did. And, and Bill said, the thing that struck me, he said, was I don't know much about helicopters, but I know the little white airspeed needle should not be 20 knots above the little black and yellow maximum speed needle. <laughs> he said, so I didn't know what to say. You know, it's his helicopter. So I, I thought, I'll, I'll be subtle. I said to him, uh, do you get to fly these very often? And he turned to me and said, oh, this is the first time since the last crash. <laughs> but, uh, so he was a fabulous guy. But you're right. We got to meet all sorts of really interesting people. Uh, and, you know, it's bit, 80% of our customers were business people. That, that's the raison d'etre of the airplane to take people quickly between northwestern Europe and the eastern coast of the United States. And the profile of 80% was true throughout the entire history of the airplane, right up until the time we announced retirement. So 80% of our people were business people. 80% of those were repeat customers. And so we as crew got to know quite a lot of the passengers and they got to know us on first name terms. So that was great. And of course, then there were the celebrities and the, the pop stars and the TV stars. And that was great to have the opportunity to meet them and talk to them and to discover they're varying characteristics, shall I say. <laughs> okay, let's leave it at that, yeah. Um, but I mean, also, as well as, I mean, as well as the, I mean, you know, people look at the time saved, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the time saved and, and, uh, the, the fact you can, you can get across there, you know, the Atlantic and, and, you know, um, there about quicker, but also it's the, it's the lower pressure on board that, that left everybody, feeling uh refreshed and ready to do business and and you 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 didn't have that kind of jet lag uh experience well as as much jet lag as you you had with with, with normal aircraft absolutely and, and that's something that people didn't realize until they flew concord for the first time um you're absolutely right about the pressurization that the effective cabin altitude inside the airplane when we were at sixty thousand feet was just five thousand feet Whereas on a conventional airplane at say 35, 37,000 feet, it can be 8,000 feet effectively in the cabin. And of course you're in that cabin for much less time. So you'd be spending three hours, uh, up a 5,000 foot hill effectively going across the Atlantic between London and New York, as opposed to eight hours plus up an 8,000 foot mountain. And that made a lot of difference. Um, that was a big part of feeling better when you arrived. The other big part, which are traveling so quickly that you're going faster than the earth rotates. And so the sun is effectively going backwards in the sky. I mean, you take off from London at 11 in the morning, local time, arrive in New York an hour and 40 minutes earlier, you'd arrive in New York at 9.20 because you've gone so quickly. And the sun moving backwards in the sky, the scientists tell us, resets the body clock. So you really uh. did feel when you got there, that it was 20 past nine and you're, you, you feel fully up to a full day. And that was the other big part of time saving for our customers because being business people, time is money. Um, they would arrive 
uh, fully rested to do a full day's work so they could do in two days what would otherwise have taken four. Um, and that saves their well-being, but it also saves a lot of money because these are the chief execs, chief operating yeah, officers yeah. of big companies. Their time is precious. It's very valuable. And if they can do in two days what would otherwise take them four, they've got an extra two days in the office, which is extraordinarily valuable, and they feel so much better. So it wasn't just the the literal time of just three hours and 20 minutes across the Atlantic. It was those peripheral elements that people didn't really realize until they were had their first few flights on the airplane. And what were your what were your personal favourite flights? Then I mean, I mean, double sunrises must be must be something to uh, you know to go kind of put in your in your in, in your logbook. But yeah, absolutely, uh, well, that, that, uh, when you took off from London in the um, spring or the autumn on the evening flight, you would take off in pitch darkness. The sun had set a long time ago, and you would travel across the Atlantic so quickly that the sun would rise in the west. And it would get up and be broad daylight. You'd land in New York in broad daylight. And then you'd, having seen two sunrises in a day, you'd then see the second sunset of the day as you cross the bridges into Manhattan. And that was really striking. Going the other way, um, you could clearly see the shadow of the earth on the upper atmosphere as we approached darkness, the, um, the Terminator. And it was really, really distinct, a very sharp, dark line. And it, the, the speed with which it approached you, because it appears to be approaching at the speed that you're traveling, plus the speed of the rotation of the Earth, was so striking. And on one occasion, I actually did a flight. It was one of our special flights up to uh, Rovaniemi in Finland. And we went up there, and out of the right-hand side of the airplane, when we were going north, off to the east, it was pitch dark, it was darkness, and out to the left, it was broad daylight. Because wow. you were right on sort of the edge of the Terminator. That was an amazing experience. Um, yeah, I've got some really, really very, very fond memories of special times on the airplane. It was really wonderful. And um, so, when you when you, you you know you're doing these amazing flights, you're you're seeing this stuff. You're arriving uh, arriving, you know, uh, double sunrises, and and you you're you're in this sort of uh, small elite. Uh, crew uh, sort of fleet I mean was there any uh, was there any sort of rivalry or jealousy from the rest of BA pilots and crews uh, was that you know no no, no punch-ups at ho- hotel bars well, no, no, there were never any punch-ups we yeah. certainly got the mickey taken out of us a fair amount uh, but that was all goes with the territory really um, yeah, yeah there was there were elements amongst some of the crews on other airplanes that thought that we thought we were special which we didn't we just realized we were very lucky um, and what we did as much as we possibly could was uh, accept and deliver on any requests from other crew members or um, to fly on the airplane or fly the simulator you know if somebody came into the office and said look mike i'd really really love to fly concord but i i don't want my career on it because i want to see the world i totally understand that and then they turn around and say, but can I have a go on the simulator? And so, yeah, of course, you know, we'll organize it. Get yourself down to Bristol where it lives and we'll get you a slot. And that was all part of trying to get people to realize that it, it wasn't um, us thinking we were a special elite group of people because we didn't. We just realized that we were very, very fortunate and very happy to be flying this fabulous airplane and we knew that you know all of the other crews would realize what a great airplane it was even if it's not what they wanted to do with their career which is perfectly understandable 
So, yeah, but we still got our legs pulled rotten. So, uh, yeah, you just live with that, don't you? <laughs> so looking at this sort of engineering side of things and the, the, the technical sort of um, – uh, progress that 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 it kind of ushered in as well. I mean, uh, I mean, Concord is said to be uh, as complex an engineering challenge as the Apollo moon landing. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I, I, that was not for me to say. That was a something <laughs> said to me by Neil Armstrong. Um, I oh. was I was lucky that I'd been a master of the honourable company of our pilots, and um, at one of our award dinners once, I was lucky enough to be uh, sitting on the same table as Neil Armstrong. Now Neil was. Um, a very shy chap, and he was come over to get an award from the company, from the, the air pilots, and not for his space work, um, but for his pilot work, particularly on the X-15. And um, this was a, a, an award in recognition of his contribution to um, aviation. And although he's very shy, he was initially reluctant to come. Then he said he would come, but he said could I please sit with a small group of people on a small table rather than one of the large tables we, that, that we have at the mansion house? So he did. There was only eight of us on the table. Um, the other piece of the brief was he's not going to, he's not going to get up and speak and he's not going to say anything to the, uh, when he receives the award. Well, it was just the eight of us, him and seven of us. And we got chatting and it went very, very well. And subsequently, actually he did, when he got up to receive the award, he did. He gave an impromptu speech, which was great. But before he did that, we were chatting about the the comparisons between the Apollo program and Concorde. And it was his words. He said it's as technically as challenging uh, to fly Concorde as it was to put a man on the moon. And he said, but bear in mind, we stopped putting men on the moon in the mid to late 70s. And you're still flying Concorde today. This was, you know, the 19, late 90s. Um, and so... Yeah, if, if he thinks that, then I'll take his word. Um, but it was certainly was a very technically complex piece of engineering, uh, you know, delivered on both sides of the Atlantic and that in its, uh, the Atlantic, both sides of the channel. And that in itself tells a bit of a story because one of the reasons that it was the British and the French paired up was that they had independently been producing uh, designs for a supersonic airliner and because there is really only one elegant solution to such a complex problem. They'd come up with very much the same sort of answers, very similar designs, which is one of the reasons that the British and the French collaborated. It's also one of the reasons that um, the boom supersonic aircraft, the Overture, which is on the drawing boards, is equally very similar to Concorde, because, again, there's you know only really one simple elegant solution for such a complex problem. Wow, and why? Why? Do, I mean, thinking about the, the the U.S. sort of reaction to um, to, to Concord uh, over on the other side of the Atlantic. I mean, obviously they they you know they wanted to develop their own SST at one point and uh, were plowing you know uh, millions billions into that into that. Why do you think they couldn't do it? Well, I think that it was political and economic. Their SST, the Boeing two seven zero seven. Um, was a much more um, sophisticated airplane, a lot of titanium in the structure, bigger, carry more passengers, had a swing wing, it was more complex from an engineering perspective, was going to be much more expensive than Concorde. And in fact, they never got beyond the plywood mock-up stage in terms of um, putting metal together. They never did that, just a a plywood mock-up. They spent more on that program uh, than we spend on the Concorde program at the time. When they cancelled the 2707, 
the Americans had spent more money than Britain had spent on the Concorde. They'd only got a plywood mock-up. and We'd got an airplane flying. Um, so that puts it into perspective. Politically, Nixon wanted to cancel the project. So uh, that was something that was difficult. And that did, as you said, did boil over into a lot of initial resistance in the States to Concorde. Elements of not invented here. Um, the environmental groups were anti-Concorde and they managed to get it in the public perception that the airplane would come screaming over Long Island at Mach 2, kill all the babies, um, which clearly isn't the case. But, you know, it was difficult to to shake that. And we had to put the airplane through a lot of hoops, particularly to get uh, permission to go into New York. Now, that in itself was a challenge. Uh, but the, the challenge was we had to demonstrate that the airplane was less noisy than its contemporaries. Um, and there were going to be tests to prove it. So the, the contemporaries were the 707 and the VC-10 type airplanes, which we now know, well, even at the time we knew, were quite noisy. But we had to be less noisy than that. And so what we did was to do a number of demonstration flights taking off from New York uh, and flying the airplane at maximum weight and demonstrating to the authorities that the amount of noise we put down was less. So to do that, we developed um, a very uh, interesting and a unique departure procedure out of New York. So taking off on the main runway there, 31 left, up towards the northwest, conventional airplanes would climb straight ahead to about 1,500 feet before turning on course. What we did, because we had so much power in hand, was to turn on course at 50 feet uh, and turn tightly inside Jamaica Bay. So we are putting down our noise over the water, whereas the conventional airplanes are climbing straight ahead over uh, urban built-up areas before they turn. And what happened then was when they measured the noise at noise monitoring posts, lo and behold, our recordings were less because the noise monitoring posts were where the people are, and we were avoiding the people. And so we got permission to operate into New York. And um, amazingly, not long after that, other airlines started saying, well, hang on a minute. If Concorde's turning at 50 feet, why are we climbing ahead to 1,500 feet before we turn? Now, they couldn't turn at 50 feet because they didn't have the performance to do it. But they could turn at 500 feet rather than 1,500. And that made a big difference, the overall noise levels in New York. And so, ironically, when Concorde started operating to New York, the overall noise levels uh, at, at the airport went significantly down. The other aspect was that um, because New York was the busiest Concorde airfield in the world, because both we and Air France operated there, they became great Concorde supporters, as did the Americans. It was, you know, it's the Americans took a long time to give us permission, uh, but once they gave us permission, we were their new best friends, uh, and so. Uh, we actually went to uh, 76 different airfields in the United States. Um, and whenever we went to one as a one-off, uh, literally tens of thousands of people would turn out. I can remember going to Oklahoma City once, 45,000 people turned wow. out to see the airplane. And we got that sort of reception everywhere. And when we stopped operating, retired the airplane, it was the Americans that were noticeably the more shaken by the fact that they were losing this link to Europe, um, even more so than perhaps some in Europe were losing their link to the States. Yeah, well, I, 
Fascinating. I mean, it's it's ironic now that it's the it's the U.S. that is is uh, seems sort of a gung ho to 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 revitalize uh, supersonic flight with NASA with Boom, and it's now Europe that's now looking going going. Oh, I'm not sure we're, we've got the environmental restrictions, and you know we're we're not quite sure. Whereas whereas you know before it was it was obviously the the U.S. with the um, you know like I say we're. Our, our, our sonic boom's going to kill babies on in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, it's now it's it's very much a financial thing, and um, the financial uh, challenge of putting uh, a new supersonic airliner into the air is greater than the financial challenge that it was before. Not just that the numbers are higher, but because when Concorde was born, it was acceptable for the governments to underwrite um, projects like yeah. that, and indeed they did. Um, whereas the world has moved on and it's no longer seemed to be acceptable that uh, national governments uh, will underwrite massive commercial projects like that. So they've got to be commercial standalone projects. And, of course, you need something with the financial muscle of the United States to make it all happen. Uh, but there will be, I have no doubt, significant European contributions to the project. And, obviously, we can't talk about Concord without the... Um the tragic accident in July 2000 and uh, the accident investigation which you were a part of and, and the whole, uh, you know, the, 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 I suppose the misfortune of, of it, it returning to service just as air travel comes back in it and, and the shock from 9-11, you know, of, uh, of one one kind of unfortunate um, uh, incident after another. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, had you or had anybody said to me before that, terrible accident in Paris how would I feel about a Concorde accident I think I'd have said to them oh it won't happen it's such a safe airplane uh, if it did happen it would be awful for the supersonic project awful for Concorde well it wasn't like that at all um, I learned of it when my wife and our daughter were going on holiday we were going across the Atlantic on the QE2 uh, sailing across and coming back uh, by air and we'd gone down to Southampton and we, uh, the bags were in the cabin. We were going up the gangplank where my pager and phone went off simultaneously. Contact British Airways most urgent, which I did. And that's when I heard about the awful accident. And, um, my reaction was nothing to do with what I thought it might be about it can't happen or it's bad for the airplane. It's all about the people. And my first. Uh, well, my first action was, what do I do? Do I go on holiday or do I return to Heathrow and my family miss out on the holidays? Unfortunately for them, it was the answer B. So we got the bags out of the cabin and um, we set off up the motorway. And all the way up the motorway back to Heathrow, I was on a conference call. Um, apart from the one thing that I did do, which was to ring my counterpart in Air France. And um, I rang him and he had just arrived at the accident scene. And it was all about the people. What can we in BA do to help and support um, him and our colleagues and friends in Air France at this awful time? Um, and, you know, you think initially there's not much that you can do because it's so remote and it's, you know, it's their friends and family. But just being there can be support. And about two and a half, three weeks later, or maybe longer than that, it wasn't that much after the accident. He actually rang me up and said, Mike, you remember saying to me on the day of the accident, if there's anything you could do, um, just tell you. I said, yeah. He said, 
well, what you can do is take me out for dinner because I'm arriving in London this evening on the 6.30 flight. Will you pick me up? So, yeah, of course, of course I will, which I did. And just he and I went out and uh, we went to a a local Italian restaurant and tried to rid the world of red wine um, and nearly succeeded. But the support that he needed, because he was their chief pilot, having to give support to his colleagues and the friends and families of those that had perished, um, was the support that he needed. He needed support. He had been to 13 funerals in 10 days. Uh, mm. And, of course, he had seen his baby, Concord, crash and knew what effect that's likely to have on the, the whole of Air France and the whole of the Air France operation. So, yeah, you, you, you say these things and you think, well, what can I do? But there are times when you can, you can actually do something significant. And then the other thing was um, having to tell our six-year-old daughter who'd lost the holiday, you know, I was away for a while. And when I came back, I did say to her, you know what's happened? She said, yes, Daddy, uh, you're making sure that this never happens again. And that's what we did from right from the get-go. Once we'd got used to the, the whole awful state of affairs, let's see if we can find out exactly what happened and let's ensure that we can guarantee it cannot happen again. And that's what occupied, you know, the next year or so of a lot of people's time, effort and energy uh, and a lot of very skillful people in getting the airplane back into the air with the modifications that were incorporated to absolutely ensure that that accident could never happen again. And your book's a bit of a, bit of a detective story in that respect, isn't it? And kind of piecing the clues together and, and to, to giving people some of an insight into, into the accident and, and the accident investigation sort of, you know, as, you know, following on. Yeah, that's a story in itself because the initial part of that um, was about getting the airplane flying again safely, which we did. Um, and then, of course, there was the retirement, which I guess we'll talk about in a few minutes. But after I'd retired, um, a friend of uh, a life friend of uh, Chris, my wife, um, had been flying. She was a senior cabin crew with uh, Continental Airlines. And she'd had a flight one day and their senior board, mem- board level lawyer was on board and she got chatting to him and he was coming over to Paris uh, for the first part of what turned out to be the Concord trial. And uh, Lee, this friend of ours, said, well, if you need anybody to give you advice, I know the very man. And so they contacted me and I got very heavily involved in being both an expert witness, a technical advisor uh, and uh, a witness, direct witness in that trial. And that in itself, uh, A, occupied a lot of time, several years, but B, it opened my eyes to the whole litigation process that exists um, under French judiciary for that type of an accident. And um, I hope I've captured some of that in the book, because when I tell that story, people are astounded that um, things like that went on and, and do go on. But I, you know, I won't go into too much detail, because surprisingly enough, I'm trying to encourage people to buy the book and read it. But, um, <laughs> you know, it is, it, 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 it's, that's part of a story that I really felt needed telling. Um, because when I've ever told it on a face-to-face lo- level, people are quite astounded about, you know, what actually happened. I mean, there's, there's quite a few conspiracy theories, isn't there, along the lines of, um, you know, kind of um, the, the retirement of Concord on, um, uh, you know, why it, why it was retired, and along the lines of uh, Air France wanted to get rid of their fleet, BA couldn't go it alone. Um, could Concord be... be, be been kept flying do you think we looked at that i mean the, the 
just taking a couple of steps back to set the scene, because when the airplane was first being developed between the first flight in 1969 and entry into service in 1976, in that seven years, initially, there was huge enthusiasm. There are over 230 orders and options placed by airlines all around the world. Then in the early 70s, there was a major fuel crisis, and all those airlines decided that they wanted to cancel their orders and options because they were faced with a choice. Do we fly Concorde or do we fly the 747? Now, you can argue that you should fly Concorde because you'd make more money with a full Concorde going across the Atlantic than you would with a full 747. But in the aviation industry, which is always cyclical, the view was taken it's better to fly 400-ish people in a 747 than 100 in Concorde because you're building a, a future customer base. Uh, and I get that. So all of the airlines wanted to cancel Concorde, and I do mean all, including British Airways and Air France. But British Airways and Air France at the time were owned by their respective governments, their respective taxpayers, who instructed them to fly the airplane. In exchange for that, and the airline saying, but we'll lose money, the governments underwrote the projects. Uh, basically, they said, if you make any losses, we'll cover those. If you make any profits, we want 90%. It's more complex than that, but that was the core of it. And the other part of it was that somebody had got to pay for the infrastructure cost, the manufacturer's uh, plant, equipment, personnel that would support the operation, not the airline's engineering department, the manufacturers. Somebody's got to pay for that. Well, normally that's paid for by a slice of each sale that Boeing and Airbus, Airbus make. But if you're only going to sell 14 airplanes, somebody's got to pay for that. And that somebody was, again, the British and the French taxpayer through their respective governments. So the airlines were not paying that bill, but there was no incentive to make any money. In 1984, British Airways went back to the UK government and got that deal changed. So that from 1984 onwards, um, we stood all the cost, but we also kept all the profit. And Concorde was very profitable from that point for British Airways. It made around £500 million real profit uh, in that period till the time that we decided we had to retire the airplane. And at times, the seven aircraft in the Concorde fleet were generating 45% of the entire company's profit. Um, so wow. it was a profitable airplane. But Air France didn't do that. Uh, they yeah. were always underwritten by the French government. So... When Air France were coming up to privatization, they had that massive Concorde loss on the books. They had had the accident. The law had changed so that um, senior executives in company at board level could be held personally responsible if there was a major accident. They had another significant incident in the early part of 2003. And so within Air France, there was a strong desire to uh, cease operations. Um, now, the, inside the treaty, and it was a treaty between the UK and France, there was a clause that said if one side decided to stop, they would remain responsible for their share of the cost. But when we pointed that out to the French, they said, well, take us to the European court in The Hague. So basically, British Airways would have ended up paying all of that support cost themselves. And by the time this was going on in 2002-03, that figure had grown to £100 million a year before you move an airplane an inch. Uh, and that was just unsustainable. Uh, we couldn't afford that. And we did look at keeping an airplane flying for high days and holidays. But because it's an infrastructure cost, it, it, it is yeah. dependent on how many airplanes you've got. 
So we had seven, it would have been a hundred million. If we'd had one, it'd be a hundred million. And even if you were really clever and cut that in half, it's still a million pound a week before you move an airplane an inch. So it was just unsustainable. Uh, and of course, other organizations have done similar things. The Vulcan carried on flying, but the, the Vulcan's a much simpler airplane, certificated to different standards, being ex-military. Uh, and they're just, even that in the end stopped because of shortage of cash. And so Concorde really as a, a high days and holidays airshow aircraft would have been fantastic, but it was just utterly unaffordable. So the reasons why the two airlines decided to retire for Air France, it was predominantly driven by the accident and their financial structuring. For British Airways, it wasn't the accident. It was the fact that Air France wanted to pull out and without Air France, we couldn't bear the cost of uh, the, the engineering support that was needed from the manufacturers. So, I mean, take, take us back then to uh, 2003, uh, the retirement, the final flight, you know, your, your final flight from a personal pers- perspective. What were, your, what were your thoughts on that day? Was there, was there tissues all round and not, not a dry eye, eye in the house? There were certainly were tissues all round um, amongst a lot of the, the crew and amongst a lot of the passengers. Um, for me, it was interesting because... I've been involved in the debates about whether we should retire the airplane for some months. So I guess for a year back before October 2003, it was being discussed as a potential possibility within BA a year earlier. Now, a lot of these things are discussed as possibilities and they come to naught. Uh, Obviously, this one didn't come to naught. It did result in the retirement of the airplane. But I had argued vehemently inside BA that we shouldn't retire the airplane Uh, My argument was, yes, we're going through a a financial downturn and we're going through a bit of a blip, but we've done that historically. We'll come out of it the other side. If Air France stop, then we will be the only airline in the world operating a supersonic airliner. That will give us a huge halo effect as being a a standout airline. The business will come back. We should just, you know, hang in there. Uh, My argument didn't carry the day. Then you're faced with a choice, aren't you? Do you? Um, throw your toys out of the pram or do you accept collective responsibility and get on with the job? So I chose answer B because I was determined to try and ensure that the retirement of Concord was a celebration and not a wake, that it was something that would actually um, triumph the 27 years of supersonic operations that we'd had. Uh, and so that was my driving force. And so all through this period, the knowledge that the aeroplane was going to be retired, for me, was kind of salami sliced. I knew a little bit and then another bit more and another bit more. So the very last day, the last flight on October the 24th from New York to London, was just another slice of that salami. So I was more focused on ensuring that it was a celebration, it was memorable, that it went well, that the people on board, um, A, enjoyed it on the day and B, remembered it forever that that was the bigger emotion than the sadness about it. Um, nonetheless, <coughs> it was a very sad day, but it was it was also a fun day. People, because we put a that this was going to be a celebration, people did enjoy it, um, and we did make the most out of it. Um, I can remember uh, one or two fascinating things about it. The, the the thing that I personally remember most was I think I mentioned earlier the Americans by this stage were very pro Concord, and so the uh, New York Kennedy Airport Fire Service 
uh, said to us that they would like to lay on a tribute to Concorde in the form of a water arch from their fire engines. And so we knew about this and we were going to taxi out under this water arch. Um, yep, fairly easy procedure because we got the flight deck windows open with flags waving. So as you approach the water arch, it's dead easy. Pull the flag in, close the window under the water arch, out the other side, open the window, put the flag out. And that's what we did. This water arch was incidentally red, white and blues. So that was really spectacular. Um, crossing the Atlantic, we got a radio message saying that the, the Heathrow fly, uh, Fire Brigade had learned of this and wanted to also lay on a water arch. Was that OK? Yeah, sure. So we landed and we were taxiing in, uh, approaching the water arch. Dead easy, isn't it? Flag in, close window, underwater arch, open window, flag out. No. Uh, flag in, close the window. Oh, no, the window's jammed. And uh, We went under the water arch and an entire fire hose volume of water came in my side through the, the flight deck window all over the internal instruments. And I was literally saturated to the skin. Uh, and this is October. It's quite chilly outside. Uh, they laid on a large temporary three-story media center. And the first person that I was going to talk to on interviews was Richard Quest, who was then with CNN, who I knew reasonably well. And I'm walking up to him on the third floor of this media center, literally duck-footed, because I am, squish-squashy, with water dripping off my uniform, out of my shoes. And there was a path behind me. It's like a cartoon. There was a path behind me where my feet had been. And he couldn't interview me because he was in hysterics. So, I mean, it, it, that was one of the greatest memories. And then I guess the other one was um, at the end of that evening, um, we had a big reception. We'd done several receptions for our customers. This one was for BA people. There was, It was for the... The, the British Airways Concorde family, if you like, inside the airline, which at the time had about 40,000 employees, at any given moment, there were around 250 folks on the Concorde project. So pilots, engineers, flight engineers, cabin crews, sales agents, tickets agents, loading staff, booking staff, marketeers, PR people. They're, they're not always the same 250, but there were about 250. So this was for them, particularly uh, recognizing the engineers who'd done such a fantastic job incorporating the uh, modifications and it, it was after the, the last day on the 24th of October um, and I was the very last person to leave and my car I was being picked up uh, at the engineering center so I'd walked across the tarmac uh, it was dark it was about 10 30 it's October October days of mists and mellow fruitfulness there was a, a fog in the air other yellow sodium lights were shining it was just me and uh, as I went across the tarmac, there were five perfectly serviceable Concords that would never carry another fair paying passenger again. And yeah, that's when the tears came because it was then that it was real that, you know, here are these airplanes that are perfectly capable of carrying on for years to come, but we're going to go and park them at museums around the world. So at least the public can see them. Um, but they're not doing, they will no longer do what they were designed to do. Wow, that's that's um, leads me uh, gr- uh, brilliantly on to my next question. Is is uh, I mean we're here, we're here sort of nineteen years on from that, and um, it's still gripping our imagination and dreams. Um, so you know, it, people still want to read about Concord. People want to know about Concord. People still enjoy clicking on links whenever there's a picture of Concord. Um, what? Why? Why is it still? 
so iconic in people's memories and what, what do you think it's its legacy is oh it's it is you're right it is iconic um when you look at it today it looks like a 21st century design but of course it was designed in the late 50s early 60s by visionary people who just had the drive to produce an aircraft that could carry 100 passengers at twice the speed of sound across the atlantic um the the psychologists tell us that it appeals to everybody because it appeals to both sides of the brain. It appeals to the artistic side and the technical side. It is a beautiful shape. It's like every child's paper aeroplane. People recognize what it could do and that we can no longer do those things. Not at the moment anyway. You know, that it did cross the Atlantic in three hours and 20 minutes. And if you cross the Atlantic in eight and a half hours now, going between London and New York or London and Washington, you realize what a benefit that is or was. Um, and it, of course, had a, an aura about it because it did attract the celebrities. You know, only 10% of our customer base were celebrities, but it attracted the celebrities, which got the press. And then some people inside BA, particularly Jock Lowe and Brian Walpole, had the vision to see there was an opportunity to make Concord available to a much broader customer base for the trip of a lifetime customers uh, and we could lay on special flights which could take you either around the bay take off from Heathrow and fly for an hour and 40 minutes before landing back at Heathrow or everything between that and around the world a 23 day around the world air cruise where there's just you and your Concord going between uh, resorts and five-star hotels all the way around the world those two extremes and in between that so many others made Concord available to the general public and it became an achievable aspiration. And so people really related to it. Uh, the number of people I have met who have been on the aeroplane um, because their families had sent them as a, a treat. One one particular lady I'd met once, uh, she was 85 years old and she had never flown before. I don't mean piloted. She had never been on an aeroplane before and her family had treated her to a Concorde ride. And uh, she was just full of jubilation. She thought it was wonderful. And that would always refresh us as crew if we ever, ever lost sight of how fortunate, honoured and privileged we were to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. Doing those sorts of flights with so many enthusiastic customers on their trip to a lifetime would just refresh the knowledge of how lucky we also were to be involved in this whole fantastic project that, you know, had a supersonic aircraft flying for 27 years. Um, that in itself is amazing. In, in retrospect, I always, I, I always think that is astounding. Wow. And I suppose one, one key question then, uh, as we come, well, we get to the end, end of this podcast, uh, for our listeners, uh, who, uh, who might be wanting to, this to happen in a big way is will supersonic passenger flight ever return? And, and how, how do we make it sustainable or, or how do we, when, when you've got, um, things now like, um, broadband video internet connections we can talk each other we can we can we can skype we can zoom um do you think it's going to come back will it is there a need for it well i certainly think it'll come back i'm i'm an optimist my glass is always half full um and i don't think that the human race takes backward steps for very long um it is a challenge for the reasons that you've mentioned and certainly environmental considerations and sustainability are right up there and 
the availability of remote conferencing is up there, but I'm convinced there there is a need for a supersonic airliner, and it can be done. There have been a number of companies over the last few years who have embarked on that path. Right now, personally, I think the one that's most likely to succeed is Boom with their Overture aircraft, uh, for which they recently announced the engines. Uh, It looks a lot like Concorde. It's a four-engine aircraft, very similarly shaped wings. It cruises at the same altitude, 60,000 feet. It's a little bit slower, Mark 1.7. Greater range, uses sustainable aviation fuel, designed to meet all of the environmental regulations in place at entry into service and projected through the life of the aeroplane. So from technical perspective, it's doable. Um, From a challenge to broadband, well, I always remember um, one particular customer. He was a a British business person, and he worked for an American company. And he was going across to the States to sign a contract. In fact, he went over and back in the day uh, just to sign this contract. And this, this was admittedly in the early days of remote conferencing. But I, I said to him when I saw him, you know, why are you doing this? Why can't you do it remotely? And he said, this contract is worth $2.7 billion to my company. I want to look into the individual's eyes who's signing from the other side. And I want to know who's whispering into that person's ears. He said, I want to shake that person by the hand personally. He said, $2.7 billion. I can afford to travel there and back on Concord for a day, and I cannot afford to get it wrong by a remote conferencing. Take that to the other end of the extreme for the leisure market. The, the commercial proposition of something like Boom and the Overture is simplistically this. Would you pay 20% more uh, than a, a business class fare to get there in half the time? Now, there are an awful lot of people who travel business class on vacation. And they choose to travel business class because it's more comfortable. It's part of the treat for them and for their family. So if you could get there in half the time for just 20% more, would you do it? I think that's a very attractive proposition. So, it, it, and of course, the, the Overture is a three-class airplane, whereas Concorde was a single-class, first-class plus airplane. So you, you're looking at uh, economy class fares plus 20% to fly on a supersonic airliner. And if you only do it once, it's ticking that box. So clearly, I think it's a viable proposition. Clearly, Boom Aerospace do. And clearly, the airlines that have placed options and orders with them do. And I'm optimistic um, that they'll meet their timelines and that they will have an aircraft certificated by the end of this decade. And if they do, I'm hopeful that they'll let me have a go. But uh, we'll see. <laughs> Brilliant. So we're we're coming up to the end of the end of the 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 the, uh, the Q and A here. I'm just just aware of the uh, the the time here, and uh, don't want to keep you too longer. But um, a couple of last sort of quick quick questions. Then, so the book's come out. What's the reaction from pilots, crew, and critics about the book? Well, they've been, uh, they've been and- very generously um, favourable. I'm very pleased. Um, <laughs> yeah, I still get my leg pulled, but that's fine. When people don't pull your leg, that's when you've got to worry. Um, and it's got their best-selling flag on Amazon, and I get very encouraging reports from the publishers. And, uh, yeah, and Penguin Random House have been great. So, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, and it's going well, as is the audio book. And the paperback comes out in May of next year. So, um, yeah, it's exceeded my expectations by in trumps. I'm, I'm delighted. 
Fantastic. Right. Brilliant. Yes. Uh, so, uh, any plans for future books? Yeah. Well, one, I, one of my, this, one of my earlier questions was, have you any favorite depictions of Concord in fiction? So I think, you know, there could well be a <laughs> emerging niche there. Well, interestingly, there, I can't remember the name of this book, but there was a book written in the early days of Concord's operations. I've got it on my bookcase. I should have looked it up beforehand, but it was a fictional book and it was a thriller and it was talking about how um, a terrorist organization had succeeded in planting a bomb in the rivers Concord. of Babylon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, so somebody's done that already, but I've got, I have uh, got lingering in the back of my mind, a thought about a follow up. Uh, but if I do it, it won't be another 20 years. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, Mike, it's been absolutely fantastic, uh, chatting with you. I, I, oh, God, we could, we could keep going, going for hours and hours here. I mean, but, um, I'll, I'll let you go now. Uh, where can we, are you on social media? Where can we find you or? Uh, yeah, where, I'm where on LinkedIn and Facebook. So yes. And, uh, you know, social media is great. I'm happy to respond to people. So, um, you know, uh, particularly those that are, not at the moment particularly interested in Concord, but if they want to get uh, get the flavour of it and if they uh, read the book and find it very interesting, yeah, that's great. And where, where do people get a copy of it from? Where would you? What do they say? All reputable booksellers, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's available <laughs> readily on um, Amazon and another of other online stores. Asda. It's available in supermarkets. So um, I, my publisher was telling me the other day that they're actually running shorter copies in some places. So they're going back wow. into another print. So that's always encouraging. But yeah, uh, it's available in lots of places. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended.